0: All right, we're talking about critiques of presuppositionalism, and we stopped here last week. This is circular reasoning. Uh, not only do unbelievers say this, but believers say this. Uh, we need to, need to go somewhere else. We need to talk about reason. We need to talk about uh, philosophy. And they will say, you can't do this kind of argument where the Bible is the word of God because the Bible tells us it is, because the Bible is infallible, therefore we have to believe it's the word of God. And the critique is that's just going round and round in a circle. And you're supposed to argue linear. You're supposed to argue, keep going back and back to a better authority. Well, the problem with that is, ultimately, where do we get in Christianity? To God. And God says, this is His Word. And His Word says, we should obey Him and believe Him. And so it is going to be circular, just like every belief system has a circular argument. When you get down to the very bottom, you can't go further than the bottom. So at the core, at the base of everybody's argument, everybody's philosophy, everybody's religion, there's a stopping point. And that stopping point just sends us, whoever that is, in a circular argument. So everyone has an ultimate presupposition. Beliefs that they're coming into the argument with. And those cannot be proven. Presuppositionalists are the only ones who assume, though, the ultimate presupposition. We could say the ultimate truth. We assume that as we're doing apologetics. Whenever a person argues for the truth of something, they're going to make assumptions. They're going to assume, like the Christian should, that God is real, that God exists, that the Bible is God's word. And it it testifies that it is, and we'll get into that later. But uh, this is something that we all should go into it with. Uh, John Frame says in his little book that I've recommended, everyone else reasons the same way. Every philosophy must use its own standards and proving its conclusions. Otherwise, it is simply inconsistent. So, I mentioned evolution last week as an example. Why do you believe in evolution? Because I think it's right. And, And you ask them, well, where did you, you know, what's the authority on that? Well, the textbook, let's say, or my college professor. And ultimately, you get to a textbook. Well, who wrote the textbook? Well, some men did. Where did they get that from? Well, they got that from their professors and their studies. And you go all the way back to Darwin or wherever you want to stop. But at some point, you stop at man's reasoning process, man's ability to think. We can think, therefore, we can interpret the world rightly. And here's our best shot at it. We come up with this theory of evolution. So the circular reasoning there is, man says it's that way, therefore we must believe it. Because man says it's that way, therefore we must believe it. And that's the ultimate presupposition for the atheist, is our own reasoning. We as Christians have God and His truth as our ultimate truth. Those who believe that human reason is the ultimate authority in all matters, that's called rationalism, must assume human reason is the ultimate authority. Those who believe that experience. So many would say, if we can't test it, if we can't sense it, if we can't taste it, smell it, or touch it, or see it with our own eyes, then it's not true. This is called empiricism, a philosophical way of thinking. uh, Empiricism. They would say experience is the ultimate authority. I've seen it with my own eyes, therefore it must be true. And you've all come across this, right? Don't don't argue with me, they might say, on on my belief system. Some believers do that same thing, right? I experienced it. I saw this. I had a vision. I had a dream. Someone spoke to me. And you can't argue, even if the Bible proves them to be uh, false. You can't even argue with them because they're convinced based on their senses or what they think is real. John Frame began the point is that when one is arguing for an ultimate criterion, what's your ultimate foundation for truth? Whether you're arguing from Scripture, which we should, or Muslims arguing from the Quran or uh, atheists from human reason, sensation, whatever, one must use criteria compatible with that conclusion. If that is circularity, then everybody is guilty of it. So it's really not a, a fair critique of presuppositionalism because every system of apologetics, every belief system out there, ultimately comes down to as far as it can go, the foundation, the presuppositions, and it's going to be circular. So everyone has that? I already went through that slide. Okay, let's go to some more critiques then. Uh, I mentioned critiques of the other systems. I think this is the best system. I've already argued that last week. And uh, we should have that audio up uh, this week for you to listen to from last weekend today. Um, other critiques. Uh, it is difficult to understand and does not seem to be very practical. It's much easier to look up on the internet, you know, 57 evidences for the existence of God and sort of just print it off and give it to your friend, right? It's just, you know... There's oxygen in the world, and the earth isn't falling apart, and just scientific things like that, but presuppositionalism requires some ability to handle Scripture. Not a perfect ability, not that you have your PhD in the Bible, but you've got to know the Bible to use the Bible, and you've also got to understand a little bit about the person you're talking to so you can ask the right questions to undermine what it is that, that their worldview is based on. And so, I don't think it's difficult to understand. It is if we just go off the last few classes, which is all the, the heady stuff, the intro stuff. Uh, if you read some of these books that I recommend, and you think, man, I can't understand this, that's okay, because we all start there. And a lot of the guys who write them have training in philosophy and theology, and they're interacting with philosophy, so they use big words. Uh, it's not difficult to understand once you sort of get the hang of it. By the way... The Bible's difficult to understand until you study it, until you get into it. Theology is hard until you get into it and apply yourself. Uh, third critique, some would say it says it affirms the use of Christian evidences, but these are hardly ever emphasized. So a presuppositionalist still uses evidences. Uh, we just use them rightly with the assumption that the Bible's true. And they would say, well, you say that, but you never use them. Well, that depends. It depends on who you're talking to. It depends on uh, what your personal belief is about evidences. I I, uh, think the Bible says that every person, every unbeliever, comes into this world, everyone's an unbeliever as they're born, and they have a sin nature, and that affects their minds. And so you can throw evidences at them all day long. They're just going to twist it. And we see that. We see this belief that science is going to give us eternal life and you know, if you if you freeze your head, someday they'll be able to bring you back and you'll live forever. And there's a place out in comfort where you can get your head put in this nice mansion and it freezes until the science catches up. We've all heard that. We've seen, uh, probably heard of movies about that. Well, that is the idea that science will save us. And I think going down that road and defending the faith is not going to go well. It's not useful. And they're going to twist it. Even if we start off with the assumption uh, that the Bible's true. We can use evidences, we just have to be really thoughtful and wise with that. All right, that's my slide set for presuppositionalism. Questions on that? Most of that we covered last week, so I just needed to finish it. All right, let's start here with getting now into some topics. So we're going to go through in the next few weeks some topics. This is why most of you probably signed up for this class. Um, You could have slept in, you could have, you know, just had brunch about now, but you decided to come to this class, and probably because you want to know how do we do it, how do we handle these discussions with unbelievers, and so that's what we're going to be looking at going forward. Uh, The big issues are, are the big systems of belief that you're going to run into. This is not an advanced class on apologetics, you're not going to get the most in-depth arguments. We've got a couple of books I've already recommended in the bookstore. From there, you can find many others that will take you as deep as you want to go into presuppositional arguments. And you'll find that some of those books you have to read a few times even to, to understand where they're going. So let's talk about God's existence in atheists. That seems to be a big topic when it comes to apologetics. How do we speak to an atheist? How do we speak to an agnostic? How do we speak to somebody who doesn't believe in in the God of the Bible? What do you do? How do you apply presuppositional apologetics in that case? And, and these are difficult situations. I mean, these people are usually very set against Christianity, against the God of Scripture. And you have to have wisdom, and you have to uh, think wisely as you're talking with them. But ultimately, remember, the goal is to not only defend the faith, but to see them come to saving faith. And only Spirit can do that. But that's your goal. It's not to be the best debater. You know. That's, that's an attorney that does court cases, right? The best presenter and debater. Or maybe somebody who does Christian debates. But the goal here is to see the person abandon their worldview and come to Christ. So let's just do a review of what we've already talked about here. Uh, apologetics is persuading people to think through their worldviews. This is a really good definition that I like for it. Think through their worldviews, abandon their false beliefs, and embrace Jesus. And all the while, you defend the faith. You don't chunk the Bible in the trash and say, let's go to some neutral ground. You're keeping the scriptures. You're using the sword of the Spirit. But you're asking them questions and making statements that persuade them their worldview is not correct. It doesn't line up with reality. And you want to see them abandon it then. Once they see that, they don't always see that. God's got to give them some amount of, of ability to see, of course, and then turn to Christ. So we'll come back to that and, and uh, split it out there, that definition. Uh, secondly, uh, the faith we are defending is the whole content of the revealed message taught by the apostles and contained in the scriptures, the doctrines of the Christian faith. It doesn't mean every conversation you're going to have is on these, but you're not just trying to get them to believe it's possible there's a God somewhere. That's not the goal. You spend your whole life with somebody trying to just convince them that probably, possibly, maybe there's a God. Maybe you can see that. Certainly you can see that possibly... That's just running around in the weeds. Let's get on track, go to Scripture, and we're going to defend the faith from the Scripture and the whole content. So that means sometimes you're doing apologetics inside the church. Sometimes a fellow believer is going to actually... Go and give some false teaching or error or attack the scriptures. Believers often get really mad when they come across certain verses or hear them preached. And there has to be a defense. And a a preacher is giving a defense when he's uh, talking about that. When you're talking about election and somebody says, that's not in the Bible, you've got to give a defense for that or do the best that you can from, from scripture. We're all commanded to always be ready. This was 1 Peter 3.15. We spent some time in that a few weeks ago. Always be ready to give a defense, an answer for the hope that is within us. Be ready. As a Christian, you should be ready. Doesn't mean you're going to be the best at it. Doesn't mean you have all this extensive training, but you have to get to a level of preparedness so that you are ready. And you can do that with gentleness and respect. Not just yell at them and say, well, that's what you believe, and this is what I believe, and you're going to hell. That's not really going to do much for somebody. You've got to sit down and love them enough to talk with them in a loving way and tell them the truth. There's no neutral ground. Remember that in presuppositionalism, at least, there's no neutral ground with the unbeliever. And we should never leave the Bible out of it. Let's set the Bible aside. No, I'm not going to be able to do that because the Bible is where I get my beliefs. It is the ultimate truth. If Christ is Lord of all creation, especially believers, we cannot leave him out of apologetics. We simply cannot set the Bible aside. We cannot throw Christ out and come over here on their territory. There's no neutral ground, by the way. So if you're leaving your foundation, guess what you're now standing on to argue with them? You may not realize it, but you're on their turf, their foundation, uh, in in a sense. So remember, sin affects the unbeliever's intellectual abilities. It's not just the heart. It's not just the body. It's not just the, the desire to sin. But their ability to think. I mean, even as believers, we're still trying to grow and understand better and better God's ways and learn about Him. But the unbeliever doesn't have that. We looked, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians two, fourteen. They don't understand. They cannot understand spiritual things. And so it is very likely when you tell them something that's true, they're going to suppress it. This is why evidences, just piling up evidences don't work, because they suppress it. They push it down. The Bible says they don't want to hear the truth about God. Therefore, we should not use evidence as proof. Evidence is not our ultimate proof that God exists or that Christ was raised from the dead. As our foundation of the Christian faith, evidence does not work. You're going somewhere other than the Bible, and that's not the sure foundation. So the Christian faith is not based on archaeology. You don't say, if somebody says, why why are you a Christian? You don't say, well, because you know in Israel they dug up this old uh, building, and it proves that God exists. Hopefully you don't say that. Uh, You don't say, well, the Romans wrote a lot about Jesus, and even the unbelieving Romans said that there was this Christ, this Messiah that Israel believed in. So that's why I believe. My foundation is based on, you know, Cicero, or Pliny the Younger, or Pliny the Elder, whatever. You don't say that. You certainly, hopefully, don't say it's based on psychology or philosophy. These are man-made studies where man is attempting to figure things out in the world. We don't base our faith on that. So don't go into apologetics trying to base everything you believe on those things as well. Scientific or historical evidence will not bring about faith. You're not going to argue somebody into the Christian um, regeneration, for example, or the Christian faith by giving them historical documents or giving them all the things that the intelligent design people have written. Those might be helpful in your argument as long as you have the Bible as your foundation, but you're not going to bring them to faith through that. It's God's Word. So why not just use God's Word as the tool that it is to defend the faith And you never know what verse might get across. You know, R.C. Sproul was saved ultimately by this verse in uh, Ecclesiastes 11 about the tree falling. tree falls in the woods. There it lies. That opened his eyes. I mean, it was just like that. And there are many other verses uh, in the Old Testament you might think, how does that save anybody? But sometimes that's how it works. It got him to thinking and he recalled some of the truths about Christ and the Bible and I won't go through his his testimony, but uh, use the scripture. You don't know how God's going to use the Bible to open their eyes. And lastly here, uh, man does not get to weigh the evidence of God's existence. It's not like they got their, their side of the scale to put all that they want on that side, and we have our side, and let's see who can get the heavier, weightier, more arguments, and let's see where the scale goes. It doesn't work like that. Man doesn't get to set himself up as judge. We've got to go into this, with atheists especially, assuming, because we already believe, and we need to make that clear, that there is a God. We're not going to say, well, I'm going to set all that aside, and I'm going to come see your point of view, and try to reason that way. It does not work. So we can't set ourselves up as determining how we can prove that God exists. He's already given us His Word. So how do we do it? Well, back to the the definition, and this sort of breaks it out into steps here. We need to persuade people to think through their worldview. That's usually the first thing that happens. Either we're going to tell them what we believe and and why we believe it and and start there, or we're going to start by just getting people to think through their worldview. Oh, I'm a Muslim, they say, or I'm an atheist. What's the next thing out of your mouth? You're probably going to ask them a question, you might say, I'm not. I'm a Christian, and here's why. But you could also just start asking them questions. Uh, one of you caught me out here last week and said, I think what I'm going to do is just ask a lot of questions whenever I'm talking to an unbeliever. And that's a great thing to do. Ask a lot of questions, not to learn what they believe necessarily, but to get them to think through it. So they need to be you know, key questions. Uh, but this is the first way to go about it here. Step one. And then we're going to persuade... <laughs> should be an E on the end to persuade people to abandon their false beliefs and embrace Jesus. So why do you believe what you believe? And let me ask you some questions that help you see that's not consistent. Now, why don't you leave that because it's not consistent. As you can see, there's no foundation to stand on. And turn to the one true foundation, the one sure foundation, Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that while defending the truths of the gospel. We're not going to set that aside. So I'll keep mentioning that because too many times in apologetics, people just set the Bible aside. They're not going to accept it's true, so I can't bring it up. Does that work with your parenting? You know, my, my kids are never going to listen to me, so I'm just never going to discipline them. Who cares if they want to listen to you? You're still going to tell them what to do. My kids often think they don't have to do what I say, but I'm still going to tell them. That's what you must do. God exists. It doesn't matter if they don't believe it. I'm coming from that standpoint and not trying to assume, well, let's set it aside. Can you set God's existence aside? Never. So let's talk about atheism in particular. Here's some questions. They did some surveys over the years, teens and and college students, the four big questions they're asking. And Look at number one. How can I know that God exists? even Christians, raised in Christian homes, go off to college, they take their first class in philosophy or or biology or whatever, and the professor, these days it could be anything, English, foreign languages, uh, people will ask the student why they believe what they believe. And they'll try to get them to abandon what they grew up with. Oh, you just think that because that's how you grew up. That's your tradition. And you need to abandon that. Let me show you that God doesn't exist. And usually that's in science and philosophy, but I had a, uh, years ago in college, in a small town in West Texas, where I went to school in San Angelo, they had a professor there that was British literature professor, so I took him, and he was always attacking Christians. And of course, I was an, unbelie- I was an unbeliever then, so I didn't care as much. I felt a little uncomfortable, but there was a um, young woman in the class who was a believer, and he was always attacking her, and he was going after... Um, Oh, the big conferences they used to have where men would go and learn how to be husbands. I forget what that was now. Promise keepers. Yeah, oh, he had a den for promise keepers. He had like, he, they had like 10 things you're supposed to do. And this professor had like 10 reasons you shouldn't listen to that. And he was just applying all the promise keepers to this young woman in the class and just hammering her on her beliefs. Poor thing. Um, college is often just to undermine Christianity, unfortunately. Um, especially the worldly schools, but even some professing Christian colleges these days. Yeah. You go in, you pay all this money, send your kids there, a lot more money than you should pay, and then they come out an atheist. Another question they ask: How could a good God send people to hell? You have to be able to answer that. I think you should be equipped to answer that if you've been here a while, or been studying the Bible a while, or had good teaching. Um, how could a good God send people to hell? This also kind of touches on the problem of evil, which we will get into later in this course. Uh, This is number three, really, is is the problem of evil. How can I believe in a good God when there's so much suffering? How can I believe the God that you're telling me to believe in, the God of Scripture, because that is who we're going to tell them about, not somebody else's God. How can I believe in that God, that He is good, when I look around and I see a hurricane hitting Florida, And I see people dying all the time. And I see disease. And I see evil. And I see slaughter. And all of these things that have happened in human history. That's called the problem of evil. It's really not a problem in the Bible. But it is addressed over and over in Scripture. You could start by just reading Job and getting a a better understanding of that. We'll have a whole class on the problem of evil uh, later on. And then often in college... Doesn't evolution prove that God doesn't exist? The assumption here, and I, phrase, I think it was phrased when, when they sta- stated the question in the study, doesn't, in other words, of course evolution proves that God doesn't exist. That's the idea. Doesn't evolution rule out the existence of God? And how many of you went to college and had some of these questions thrown at you over and over? Okay. Yeah, and this was, you know, I went in the 90s, uh, mid to late 90s. We were seeing this in in a small conservative state school. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to run up against, starting with atheism and agnosticism, and we'll talk about some other views that pretty much equal agnosticism. The philosophic isms, and this is philosophy, by the way, these isms. Atheism is a philosophy. It's treated like a religion because they have to believe or try to believe and, and state that it's based on their, their belief system. But uh, you probably heard, you know, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. which is a good statement. Uh, it is philosophy. The isms of the world are philosophies that people have come up with. And philosophy just means the study of wisdom. But this is a special branch of philosophy where people reason back to some greater being or no greater being and they base their whole life on that. So the two big ones that we're looking at here. Atheism, which denies the existence of God or any deity, not just the God of the Bible, but any, any power, any creator outside of what we can see and this world. And if you can't see it, if you can't measure it, if you can't touch it, especially in the new atheism, uh, they would say, God, therefore, does not exist. And typically it just goes like this. Where is God? If he was real, people say, God would show himself to me. Which, you read Romans 1 and you think, wow, God shows himself every day, every moment. That's one of the things that you want to get across to them. Uh, Agnosticism is very similar. Uh, They would say that, that maybe God exists. Don't know. Can't prove it. It's unknowable. Maybe God exists, but there's no way. We just can't know if God exists or not. There's no way to... Evaluate that. And there's different forms. Uh, a soft agnostic says, I just don't know whether God exists or not, but maybe one day I'll see evidence. That's very soft agnostic, just kind of riding the fence. Uh, right now I don't believe, but someday I might. A hard agnostic says, No way to know, we'll never discover it, so I'm not even going to believe it, that God exists. So a lot of people we run into are agnostics. Um, atheism. There's so much talk in apologetics about atheism. There's so much talk in Christianity about atheism. But as we'll see, it's pretty rare that you get an admitted hardcore atheist. More likely, you're running across agnostics who just say, we can't prove it, we can't examine God, we don't know. We'll, we'll weigh the evidence. And they've already decided that and figured out there's not a God. So here's some uh, billboards now all over the world. This, I think this was in the UK many years ago. Um, Atheists have to run advertisements. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that sounds exactly like something Satan would say or has said in the Bible. That's exactly what he would love for people to believe. And in fact, one of the things about Satan is people stopped believing in him a long time ago. And he loves that as well. Because now he can tempt you and do what he wants. And nobody's even watching out. Some other billboards. Here's one in San Antonio. I didn't see this one, but this was about 2010, I think, in the upper left there. Don't believe in God, join the club. Um, I don't believe in them because their website's no longer in existence. Um, But this is uh, something, Coalition on Reason or something, a national organization. I guess they had a chapter in San Antonio at some point, Uh, but it's gone out of existence. Uh, Here's another billboard in the U.S., by the American Atheists, go ahead and skip church. Just be good for goodness sake. Happy holidays. So what they've done, and this is very popular all over, around Christmas time, uh, all over the U.S., is you can still have Christmas. You can still enjoy all these wonderful things like Santa and all this gifts and all that. You just don't need Christianity to be a part of it. And they're actually saying over, many billboards I found online, that pictures of them that say skip church. Don't go to church. Don't make... Christ your celebration at this time of year. Just make it holidays. Happy holidays and that's it. Uh, here was uh, a campaign that ran in the UK and they were getting ready for the census to go out and the atheists there, they ran a campaign. Not religious. In the 2011 census, ticked no, relig- no religion. So this guy supposedly says, I put Jedi in the last census, but I'll tick no religion this time. I'm not religious, and I don't want bishops in the government saying this is a religious country. That's just an excuse to keep religion in politics. So all kinds of, of fallacies and errors there in his thinking. Um, but he was trying to be sarcastic and put Jedi, the religion of Star Wars, in the census. So it's, it's almost a mockery in many cases of Christianity. Talking about religion, uh, some of the latest stats here on Atheism in the world. Uh, percentage of respondents in each country claiming to be either not religious or atheist, which is pretty much the same thing. Uh, maybe they're agnostic, but they, they refuse to say they believe in any god. And so the darker a country is, the more percentage of atheists. You see the red country there? That's China. The official belief system in the Chinese government is communism. And communism means you don't believe in any god. I mean, that's part of communism. It was that way in Russia when they were communists as well. And so they actively suppress Christianity and any other religions unless they can put their stamp of approval on it. When the government does that, they pretty much water it down so it's not offensive. There's also a couple of countries in Europe. It looks like Sweden And I'm not sure what that other red country is there. So maybe a geography student can see that. Orange is the next level down. So in the U.S., or sorry, Canada is orange. And America is still in the 25 to 50 percent. So we still have more Christianity in our country than other places in the world, like Australia and Canada, Uh, the U.K., France, Spain, is turning more and more away from the traditional belief in God or any God. And uh, South America is one of the least because they have traditional Catholicism. How many times you're persecuted if you turn away from those systems? Uh, Here's some Pew. Can you see that on the right? Yeah, some Pew research here. So they ask people what they believe. One-third of U.S. adults believe in a higher power of some kind, but not in the God described in the Bible. So 80% said they believed in God. So we're talking about those who don't believe in God. uh, 19%. And then of those people, they ask, what do you believe in? And some said, I do believe in some higher power or spiritual force. Not a God, they would say, but something. right? The, The universe. You often hear, the universe will take care of all things. So they believe in some force out there. Uh, that is 9% of the 19. So we're looking at atheists on the far right, uh, 10%, 10% in the U.S. do not believe in any higher power or spiritual force, or including God. Even the 80%, uh, 56% believe in God as described in the Bible. 23% believe in some higher power. So we can no longer just assume, I'm in America, everyone agrees with Christianity at least, On the surface level. For a long time, the majority of Americans, if they weren't saved, they at least agreed with the God that was presented to us in Scripture. They agreed that He existed, and then they just went about their lives and ignored Him and rebelled against Him. That's becoming less and less, and we're seeing more and more people turn away from that and even go to atheism. But 10%, and that's all over America. So in in Texas, you're going to see less of this doesn't mean the atheists aren't out there. You probably know a few or found a few. But it just means that's not always going to be our most likely person that we're talking to. And so keep that in mind. If this is a a Jehovah's Witness or a a Mormon, for example, you're probably not going to blast them with all the arguments that we're talking about here on um, atheism or against an atheist. You might. They might have some things in common. But just remember, not every person is starting from the place that there is no God. What do atheists believe? They believe that God has served as a convenient explanation for apparently unexplainable happenings. So they would say the only reason Western society believes in God is because that's a convenient explanation. Before we had science, before we developed philosophical reasoning, people didn't know why things happened, why certain thoughts came into our minds. And we attribute it to these beings out there. But now we have an explanation for that. Now we have science. Now we have psychology. Now we have all of these things that man has put together. So with the rise of science and technology, atheists believe that the need for God is going to decrease. Even, uh, I think it was Nietzsche who said, within his lifetime or right after he died, people would no longer go to church. They would no longer read their Bibles, and I I saw, I don't know if this is true, but I saw a little graphic that said in his house today, there's Bibles being printed from some Bible uh, organization. So y'all can check that out and see if that that turns out to be true. Uh, Atheists believe that the need for God is going to decrease as science and reason continue to offer natural explanations for matters once considered unexplainable. As a Christian, we should never say that science and technology can explain everything or will someday explain everything. We should never say we're going to live forever because science will catch up. That is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that everyone has got an appointed day that they will die or Christ will come back in our lifetime, and then comes the judgment, the Bible says. Atheists claim to use rational and natural explanations to explain reality and do not rely on other worldly explanations. They basically lump all belief in a higher power into one big lump and say it's superstition, it's myth, it's just made up to comfort yourself. Atheists have offered several arguments for the non-existence of God. That in itself is a funny statement, but uh, most of these have been considered as counterpoints to arguments for the existence of God. So they don't really have much new. They, they, they respond to what others have said. The Bible says this. Christians say this. Oh, here's our response. Because they come from a point of nothingness is what they, is what they believe. However, they do have one proactive argument that they often use. They think it's, it's a great argument. That's the problem of evil. That's why we're going to study that in the whole class. They think they've really got Christians on this one that all these tragedies, evil, natural disasters in the world show that an all-good and all-powerful God does not exist. They say, how can an all-powerful God let these things happen? Either He's all-powerful and should stop it, and He's good, so He will stop it, or He's not all-powerful and good, so He doesn't stop it. We're going to address that. We're going to look at that. Here's uh, Geisler and his book, Christian Apologetics. Not all atheists claim knock down and drag out arguments against God. Like theists, they, they claim varying degrees of certitude, ranging from absolute certainty to low degrees of probability. So it's all about a scale for them. How much can we prove what we're setting out to, to believe? Uh, many of the arguments then are not offered as disproofs of God, but merely as evidence against the existence of God. Other arguments are considered by the proponents as definite disproofs of God. Really, the problem of evil, I don't think, is, is a... A proactive argument. They're just responding to what the Bible says about God, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-good. And so all they're doing is playing defense. Why would you set the Bible aside when you talk to an atheist? They're already, their whole belief system is built on a response to what the Bible says. Don't set it aside. When you're ahead in a game, you press your advantage, you keep going if you're in sports. and And Apologetics, we're not trying to physically do anything to them, but we do spiritually want to continue with the thing they're already focused on. What does an atheist focus on? Disproving God. They spend their whole life trying to disprove something they say doesn't exist. I would be like you spending your whole life writing books, organizations, articles, all of these things just to disprove the tooth fairy. You really have to admit the tooth fairy is real to spend your whole life doing that. And it it is interesting to me, they don't see that, of course, but they spend everything trying to disprove God, often the God of Christianity. So here's their key beliefs. There is no God. Only the universe, only creation, only the material things even exist. They often don't even believe in a a soul. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't measure it, it doesn't exist the universe is eternal. That's very interesting. Uh, They believe the universe is eternal, which if you study Greek philosophy, they're just picking up from the old Greek philosophers who posited this thought. Here's what Carl Sagan, the famous atheist, said, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. So they say they don't believe in God, but they just took the cosmos, the universe, the creation, and inserted it in the place that we would normally say God is. The universe, they say, is not caused. It's just there. Isn't that convenient? It's just there. Because they understand if, if you have to keep going back to find the cause, the first cause has to be God. So they just say, you know, it's just there. It's eternal. There's no ultimate purpose, number three, in the universe. And human beings, number four, are matter in motion and have no immaterial soul. The only reason that you do anything, that you love, that you have feelings, that's just chemicals in the brain. And if you don't think rightly, the way society would say, or you you don't even, you struggle with sin, and you have these problems in your life, we will fix it by fixing your chemicals. We'll give you something to fix your chemicals, and voila, you feel better, you know? You drink a whole pint of whiskey, and you feel better. It's chemicals. We'll just medicate it because we're very advanced now. Fifth key belief, no moral absolutes exist. Except they just stated what they consider a moral absolute, right? And you got you to think logically here. This, this is, doesn't even make sense. They're making a statement they believe to be true. And they believe it's absolutely true. No moral absolutes exist. That's crazy. That's like me speaking out loud saying speech doesn't exist as I'm speaking it. There are widely accepted and long-enduring values, but there's no absolute lawgiver. The only reason we believe this is because it goes way back in history in our world, in our society. That's the only reason people believe things. And even uh, right and wrong is just societal. Good and evil. The thought of good and evil. This is really popular in Hollywood and, and many um, Americans today. It's really not good and evil. It's just just the way you think about it. There's really no evil. And then suddenly some great tragedy happens where somebody slaughters a bunch of people. Oh, that's evil, they say. Now suddenly what they know in their heart comes out. And then when that tragedy doesn't happen for a while, they go back to saying, well, good and evil is just what you make of it. You know, you, you decide. You're the master of your fate. You You can only suffer if you believe that some harm has been done to you. It's all about mind and matter, positive thoughts, all these things. Number six, atheists usually recognize the reality of evil, but this evil is not seen in relation to God, but it's part of a random universe that often brings negative consequences. So in their mind, evil is just random molecules that happen to collide and cause a problem. just random, randomness. It has no purpose, has no meaning, there's no design behind it. This is why the sovereignty of God, which too many Christians reject, is so important. Because if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, even as a professing Christian, then you're just saying things are happening at random. Or there's another God out there, other than the God of the Bible, controlling it. So to say God is not sovereign is to say someone or something else is causing these things. To the atheists, that's the cosmos, that's the universe, just doing random things. So they don't believe in God, but they believe in the universe, the cosmos, which is their God. There is no eternal destiny for individuals. When you die, you go into the ground and cease to exist. There's nothing after this world because they can't measure it. They can't, they can't conceptualize it in the human mind. You have to go to the Bible to get that knowledge and therefore they reject it. So what do we do? Well, Let's just remember last week, uh, I think we looked, Yeah, we read through Psalm 14. No, no, we read through Psalm 19. That's coming up later. Let's look at Psalm 14. What does it say about the atheists? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool in the Old Testament is a sinful unbeliever. We sometimes say, well, Christians are foolish and they can be in our modern sense of the word. But in the Old Testament, the fool is always somebody who is not doing what God has told them or commanded them to do. And so the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, the Bible says. They have committed abominable deeds. Why, in other words, why is it they say there is no God? What's really behind that? They're corrupt. They've committed these evil sins. There's no one who does good. We know where that comes from or gets uh, brought over into the New Testament in Romans 3. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Again, Paul quotes this in Romans 3, proving that mankind is sinful. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Look at how the Bible, how God, handles the atheist. The atheist says there's no God. Now God gives a philosophical proof to prove his existence. Is that what happens here? No what does he do? He goes after their heart. He's talking about their heart being sinful. In other words, the reason they don't believe in God is because they're sinners. And if they believed in a God, what would that mean about their sin? That it's punishable? That there's a God who might punish them for their sin? Can't can't do that. Let's just erase them out of existence. And so the Bible ties this belief that there is no God to the sinful heart of the unbeliever. This is not, uh, you won't find an example in the Bible where there's, look at all these evidences to believe that God exists. In the beginning, God. He was already there, pre-existent, eternal. That's it. Moving forward in the Bible all the way through the end, no long argumentation for God existing. There's some other beliefs out there that, that are close to this, um, but not necessarily atheism. Uh, pantheism is the belief that the universe or nature and God are identical, they're the same thing. These were the Stoics of Paul's day, some Unitarian Universalists today. It's pretty rare, this view is. It's more of an older philosophical belief that what you see is God. God is the world, God is the universe. Pan-entheism is much more popular. This is that the universe is part of God. But God nevertheless transcend, transcends or has some existence separate from it. So, God and the universe are not equal, but the universe is, is part of God, people would say. Part of, maybe the body of God, if you wanted to think of it that way. Uh, these kinds of beliefs are in Hinduism. The North American native peoples are definitely pan-entheists. Christian process theology. There are people who say they're Christians, but they believe God changes, that God is in time, that God is not just exactly like creation, but He's in time so that He changes over time. God is going through a process. This became very popular in the last century and is still today. Gnosticism, that's pretty much believe in whatever you want. Uh, Kabbalism, which is a type of Jewish mysticism. And uh, the Ismaili Shia Muslims believe this. Of course, you're familiar with polytheism, belief in multiple gods. These were the ancient Greeks, the Romans, ancient Egyptians, pagans, today modern Wiccans and Hindus. And uh, I would even say, I should add, Mormons as well. Mormons believe that everybody can become a god and there already is that happening. So, uh, polytheists. Some other views. Deism. Deism this is, is where you can't just stop when people say, oh yeah, I believe in God. The deist believes God created the world, but does not intervene within it. He's the architect, he's the designer, but he doesn't hold us accountable for anything. There's no judgment, there's no afterlife. He just, he just set it up in motion. And this was very popular during the Enlightenment, 17th to 18th centuries. Uh, many of the early American um, People who helped our government get started and, and those who wrote, and even some Christians eventually became more deists than biblical belief systems. Uh, they reject miracles in Scripture. The major proponents, John Locke, Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin probably, Thomas Jefferson, who cut most of the Bible and had his own little thin few pages that he made up, or kept from the Scriptures. The, the Freemasons, uh, most Americans probably. They would say there's a God, but how many agree that it's the God of Scripture? And even those who check it on a survey, you really wonder, do they really agree with what the Bible says about God, or are they just creating uh, their God in their own mind, who set the world in motion and then stepped back? The absentee God. He set it rolling, he got everything going, he wound up the clock, and then he just stepped away. Monotheism is the belief in one God. But even there in apologetics, you have to realize that that doesn't mean they're Christian. Even if they believe in one God, they can be of any of what's called the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, or even the, uh, I think it's Baha'i faith. Lots of people say there's one God. Does that mean they're saved? Does that mean they believe in the God of Scripture? No. And then, of course, the biblical... God, as we read about and study, is Trinitarian monotheism, a triune God, Trinity, three persons in one Godhead. But there are many who say they're Christians and reject this, the Christadelphians. You probably have heard of them or are driven by maybe a building that says Christadelphians. Jehovah's Witnesses, you certainly have heard of them. Unitarians, these are those who reject the Trinity but believe in one God. Oneness Pentecostals, or the United Oneness Pentecostals. T.D. Jakes, being the most famous, rejects the Trinity. They speak of God changing, but He's never three persons at once. He changes from Father to Son to Spirit. And then Christian scientists, Mormons, I think they would be not Trinitarian and obviously uh, polytheists as well. Let's go back. If you can see this here, um, the first one is monotheism. Just, just in a 30,000 feet level, we're looking here at what the belief system is. We have the universe and we have God is not the universe. He's outside of that. Then we have polytheism, so the universe and then many gods around. So they pray to different gods. Then pantheism, the universe and God are exactly the same. So there's one circle and that's it. And then panentheism at the bottom God is bigger than the universe, but the universe is part of God. So these are the people who go talk to a tree and say, I'm talking to God. This is, uh, what was the movie with the blue people that you shouldn't watch? But if you did, we'll forgive you. What was that called? Avatar, Avatar right. You got to go talk to the tree. And, and there's a lot of cartoons, right? Um, what's the panda movie, right? where they, the, I don't know if it's one, two, or three, but he goes and talks to the big tree. And, and the tree is sort of the spiritual being. You talk to the creation because it's part of God. Panentheism, very popular in uh, sci-fi and children's stories, movies. So I mentioned earlier we shouldn't use these philosophical proofs. Uh, This was the very first class or second class where we talked about not using the classical proofs. Uh, We love Archie Sproul, but uh, using the the philosophical method like he did or or Augustine or Aquinas, it, it relies on man's reason Not realizing that sin has really affected man's reason. Uh, If we don't use neutral ground, then how do we even have a common thing with the atheist? What do we have in common? Because that's the idea of of neutral ground. Let's set the Bible aside. We'll get over here on neutral ground. Turns out it's really not neutral. Because they're going to twist everything to the unbelieving view. Uh, Proofs end up going back to human reason. So what is our point of contact? Well, we have quite a few, the Bible says. We're both made in the likeness and image of God. You're not talking to another type of creature here. You're talking to a human being, and the Bible says that man and woman is made in the likeness and image of God. So you already have a common ground. We won't call it neutral ground, but you have a common ground. That means, assuming everything is, is working right, they can hear you, they can speak, they can, they can think even though it's tainted by sin, uh, they're a creation of God. And we should love them for that. This is why racism and murder and all of these things are so sinful is because we're talking about people made in the likeness and image of God. So we have that in common. Remember that. Also, everyone has a natural knowledge of God from nature and the conscience. According to Romans 1 and 2 and other passages, but those are the clearest, They already know there's a God. Well, they're atheists. Yeah, but they're not real atheists. They're just suppressing the truth. They put a label on themselves. It's like a man these days who calls himself a woman. He's not really a woman just because he calls himself that. He's a man pretending to be a woman. Well, they pretend that there's no God, but there's still a God. So they know this in their heart, the Bible says, their conscience. And they also can witness it in nature. The Bible never tries to prove God's existence. I already mentioned that. It presupposes. It assumes. Our presupposition is an assumption. It just starts off with the assumption that God exists. Because God put it in our hearts. Because God put it in creation that He exists. We have evidence, of course, for that. That He put there. He doesn't need to even say anything. We already know. Even the atheist has to assume God's existence every day to function in the world. This is a huge argument Develop it more well, next time we meet. Even the fact that they're talking to you proves God's existence. Even the fact that they're using logic. Even the fact that they get in their car and expect it to start. Even the fact that they watch the news and can see that rain is coming on the radar. Hopefully, we'll get some rain sometime soon. But usually, the, the uh, person is using some kind uh, of scientific method to predict rain. Where does that ability come from? Thinking, seeing. They're already assuming that things are going to work a certain way in this world. And they're using their mind that God has given them. So they're living every day as if God exists, but they're just telling himself he doesn't. So all mankind knows God through creation. We won't go through these verses. Uh, if, you wanna, if you weren't here when I went through Romans 1, go back and listen to those. I take a lot of sermons to develop that uh, section there. God has revealed his wrath there, it says. Uh, against all men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that which is known about God is evident in them. Or they don't believe in God. God says they do. So don't argue with God. Just go into the conversation knowing they already do. And let's talk about the reasons why they believe what they believe. Why? In other words, you're trying to figure out why are they suppressing the truth. And ultimately, we hope that they would say because they're a sinner. But they don't always get that far. Um, it's not that which may be known about God, but that which is known about God because He made it evident to them. He made sure every single person knows He exists. And not only that, they know something about Him, His attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen in verse 20. Clearly seen. Clearly seen. Even if they don't have eyes, they can feel They're without excuse. At the judgment, they'll be without excuse. They can't say, I never knew there was a God I was supposed to glorify. God says they do know this, and they have no excuse. So remember that as you're talking to the atheists. They actually know God exists. They have no excuse. They're suppressing that truth because of their sin. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks. So now we start the cycle that shows how sin develops in each person and in the world in general. They knew God, they set him aside. They did not honor him or give thanks, or really glorify him. I think it's a better translation than honor here. Uh, If I recall, it's the Greek word doxa. They did not glorify him or give thanks. And later, long list of sins at the end of Romans 1, and it says, even though they know the ordinance of God. The ordinance of God is that these are sins that Paul lists. Even though they knew it, They heartily went into those sins and they cheered other people on. They clapped. They said, go for it. That's your level of sin. Go for it. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Let's just uh, briefly review a theological concept, the difference between natural versus special knowledge. Or you could say revelation. There's natural revelation. There's special revelation. Here's a verse speaking of that, Romans two fourteen through 16 For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. So they know right from wrong in their heart, in other words. And that they show the work of the law, the Mosaic law, written in their hearts. So they line up with God's Mosaic law that He gave Israel, because they have the law of right and wrong that God has already given them. By the way, there was a law of God before there was the Mosaic law. But... I think we'll talk about that in the sermon more today. Uh, Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So their conscience will be the witness against them. They knew right and wrong. They didn't care. They did it anyway. Their conscience will be like a witness saying, you knew this was wrong. Acts fourteen seventeen And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Is this revealed through special knowledge, Scripture, in other words? Are God speaking to the prophets? Or is this just natural? These are natural things. God put it in our hearts that we would know right from wrong. There's a law of the heart. God sends rains on the just and the unjust, Jesus says, and makes their crops grow. Paul says, he does good to you. He sends rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. These are natural things to help people understand and know that God exists. The light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declares that there is a God. This is from really the Westminster Catechism, but it's cleaned up with Benjamin Keach the Baptist and then John Piper as, as a newer edition. Uh, the works of God show this, the light of nature in man, knowing knowing who we are, plainly declares that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for salvation. So everything God created and the conscience testify that there is a God. That is natural revelation, natural knowledge. Then there's the scripture. That is special revelation. Not general like the creation, but special given to God's people. So there's two kinds of knowledge, as I said, natural and spiritual. I'll skip that one. So we'll finish with this slide here. I want you to look at this. A lot of people think like the left. There's a God out there, and everybody is doing their best to figure him out. And Christianity is doing a little bit better, even if some Christians think this, right? There's a God, and we just have a better way to experience the knowledge of God that's out there. In other religions, they're just playing catch-up because Christianity is the best religion. But it's actually, the biblical truth is more like the one on the right. There's a knowledge of God in the middle, and people take that and go two different directions with it. Because we have the Bible, because we have the Spirit, because we've been regenerated and seek the Scriptures, the more we grow, the more we learn about God. We experience life with God. We grow in our knowledge and our depth. But that all starts, before we're even saved, with the acknowledgement that there is a God. False religions and philosophy know that there's a God, and they reason from that the wrong way. And they reason into ignorance, Paul says in Romans 1. They set aside the truth they know about God and start to create gods in their own mind to, to today where people just say mankind is God. Humans, the ultimate truth is human reason. That is the concept that is very popular today. So we'll pick up on this um, next Sunday, Lord willing. And I'll give you some more specific things you need to ask. Uh, At the very end, that's what you came for. At the end of these slides, what to ask when you start the process with an atheist. Just some general questions to get them to think through their worldview. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. It's always a joy to consider what you've done for us, how you've helped us how you've given us this knowledge. Let us help others in understanding they have nothing. They absolutely have nothing at all in this world without you. We don't even take a breath. We, we don't even eat our food without you bringing all of these things to pass, all of these things into motion, all of these things into our lives. So help us to, to love you so much that we continue to study and grow and then help others with this knowledge. Help us to speak to those who turn away from you, suppress the truth, and let us show the light of Christ to them. We pray that this will be our case, for your glory, for your name. Amen.